Lord, thank you that you are alive. Thank you that we were dead in our sins, but you made us alive together in Christ. And so for that reason, we gather around you today. We gather around you and you alone. And we pray that in this house, in our church, no one would be able to glory in their flesh. No one would glory even in another person, but that we would crowd around the most high God, Jesus Christ, in all of his glory and all of his splendor, and that you would get all of the credit, all of the honor, and all of the worth do your name. And we pray that in worshiping you in that way, we would find unparalleled joy and healing and restoration. Thank you that this is what we were made for. Pray that you would speak to us now through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says this. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Before we open this passage full of run-on sentences and prepositional phrases and just Paul and all of his excitement trying to cram everything into one sentence, I want us to first concentrate on one thing. It will make everything that he's saying make a little more sense, I think, in our lives today. You might agree with me that while this is not our only need in life, most of us in this room and most of us in our church today would agree that one of the great needs in our lives is to find for ourselves a sense of significance. Whether you want to call it significance or importance or fitting in somehow or to know that there is a justification for the reason that we exist and are alive, most of us in some way or another, I know I am, I'm searching for a sense of significance in my life. I'm looking for more than entertainment. I'm looking for more than a buddy. I'm looking for that reason in my life that is going to tell me that there is, a, there is a validation for me to be here. I am looking for significance. And one of the ways that we look for it, not the only way, but one of the great ways that we look for that significance is with groups of other people. We look for it in community. How many of us are here in this room, in, in this uh, church gathering today, because we're looking for a place for us to fit in? If I can just develop a social life, I can find that significance that's been missing all of this time. And if I could just find the right group of friends, if I could just find the right spouse, if I could just have uh, children that will validate me, I can find the sense of significance. Perhaps we would take it even farther. We would attach to it a sense of, 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 of spirituality. If I can find a church, I for sure can find a sense of importance and value and significance in my own life. Perhaps I get plugged in and am able to contribute to and pour into a group of people. That for sure will give me a sense of value because I can at least gauge from my own life that I am important. The problem with that is not so much that community or people or 
your social life or spouses or marriage or any of those things are bad per se. They're actually quite good. Well, the problem is what Paul would explain to a group of spiritual people in Athens when he would say in Acts chapter 17 that God himself is the one who gives life and breath and all things. It is in God and God alone that we live and move and find our existence. Your significance can only come from one place. Oh, it might manifest in community. It might manifest or be torn apart in any of these numbers of ways that we have described in your social circles, in marriage. It can either be manifest or it can be torn apart. But it originates with one person alone. Community can make us feel really special. I feel special right now, just looking at all y'all. But it cannot bring to you that sense of significance that you secretly want. And just, just, just start to think about it with me. How would we even know? You've got your group of people, you've got your church, you've got your comm group, you've got your family, you've got that loved one, you've got your second cousin removed, whatever it is. How would you even know that you achieved a sense of significance to begin with? Unless you had a standard outside of yourself to gauge such things. Because we don't, when God is out of the picture, when we remove from ourselves that external standard, the only way that we can even know if we've reached a a place of importance or value or significance is by comparing ourselves to the people that we've surrounded ourselves with. Think about how we do this, how I do this. The only way that I can feel better about myself is in comparison to people that are next to me. That's the only possible way that I can gauge such things. And we do this, this with a variety of things. Our, our holiness and our growth. Well, I am, I'm not as bad a sinner as that person. Well, I totally, did, I, I totally messed this up or I looked at that, but at least I didn't commit adultery like that person. Well, my thought life needs some, some work, but at least I didn't fornicate like that person. I'm not as knowledgeable about the things of God, but at least I'm not like this person. We might not ever say those things to one another, but when you remove from your life an objective standard, you have no choice but to compare how well you're doing in this life with the people around you. At the heart of such a criterion, is a self-serving attitude. I am only in this community for what I can get out of it. And I know what I can get out of it based on what I see in others around me. Paul steps in in Ephesians chapter 4 the way that he does and he offers something else to judge our motives with. He offers love, right? Look at verse 16. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love. For building up itself in love. There's a bunch of prepositions in this single verse. And all of them are going to be important because they mean something. It's, what Paul is saying is that everything in verse 16 is for the end result that the church would be able to step back and say we are more loving than we started. And love is a tricky thing. 
especially in our culture and in our day, because we can attach to that word a variety of different meanings and just turn on the TV or read the latest novel in order to choose and determine your love of choice. But if we were to go by the scriptures, and we're all familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Words like love is unbecoming, or excuse me, does not act unbecoming. Correction. As we start to mine the depths of the biblical description of love, we see that it is actually the exact opposite of the way that we sometimes act. If we were to throw one word at love, love would be doing things for another person or for others in a self-sacrificial way. It's, it's, it's benefiting or blessing others at your own expense. So it's completely opposite from the criteria we're often using. Instead of self-serving, love is self-sacrificial. So Paul is saying, if all the parts of a body of Christ are working, you should be able to see more love and more self-sacrifice. You should, should be able to see more generosity and more serving and more people uh, caring about other people instead of themselves. That is the criteria in which we should operate. It doesn't matter if we've got the right answers. Of course, that matters, but if we have the right answers and no love, we are a gong, we are a clanging cymbal, we are a cowbell with no drum set, we're a bunch of noise. You know that one of the stunning differences of a Christian community, at least according to Paul, is that love would be our criterion. If all the parts are working, we should see self-sacrificial relationships and lives in our midst. And that's the crazy thing about love in a church. And you'll start to notice this. Love has the uncanny ability of exposing some of those motivations that we take into our relationships. What are those motivations? I I, I, want to benefit myself. I'm in this for me. I I might do things, but I'm not, if I'm, Completely honest, I'm not altruistic. I have ulterior motives. I might be doing something for your benefit, but secretly I want a pat on the back. I want free dinner. I want you to take care of me when it's my turn. And think of that, how, I, how my needs are met by this community. Think of how we take that type of motivation into all sorts of relationships. Marriage, right? What are some of the reasons we get married? Well, geez, good looking or he's wealthy, or he takes care of me, or they listen to me. How do we choose our jobs, our vocations, and our careers? How much money does it make? What are the benefits? What are the long-term benefits? How is it going to affect my life? How do we choose friends? Well, how are they going to be there for me in the long run? And by the way, those aren't bad reasons. None of those reasons are bad. Some of them are actually very good things to consider. As long as you know, then when people break down on you, when people fail you, it is not relationships per se that are a failure, nor is it a church or institutions or community per se that is a failure. It is people. And if we were to be perfectly honest, it is you. And me, because we are by our fallen nature, inward focused people, and we're not quite as loving as we would like to think. And so we just do what we 
know best to do in our sinful nature. We surround ourselves with communities that satisfy our self-serving drive to attain significance and value. People become stepping stones to make us feel better about ourselves. And Paul comes in with Ephesians 4.16 and he shows us a different type of community. An upside down community that looks nothing like what you and I are probably used to. And he gives us at least two characteristics that make it different from every other type of community in the world. One, it's about other people, not me. For the first time in my life, I'm confronted with a supernatural community that is not about Chris Lazo. Paul starts to say this at the beginning of the sentence, and really, Paul's got all of these run-on sentences, all of these phrases. He starts a subject, and then he goes on to these other topics and tangents, so it's, it's going to make a lot more sense if you read along with me. He says, from him the whole body, comma, then he gives this preposition a prepositional phrase to describe what he's talking about, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament. So I want to take that phrase, just go with me for a moment, take that phrase, take it out, put it on the shelf, we'll come back to it later. You're going to see what his main point is if you read from there. From him, the whole body, skip, promotes the growth of the body. What is Paul saying? What is his main point in the text? The body promotes the growth of the body. He's saying it's all about each other. We need each other. Contrary to popular belief, Christianity is not this lone ranger task. Christianity has never been and never will be an individualistic type of thing. It's filled with individuals without being individualistic. The whole body is needed to promote the growth of the body. We need each other. And in a day and in an age where we grow disgruntled with the thoughts of of religious institutions, anything that smacks of of, uh, corporate togetherness, anything that that, uh, reeks of uh, authority or uh, organization or church, in an age where we would rather just be autonomous and do our spirituality, maybe on our own, Paul steps in and upsets all of this by saying, by virtue of you being saved by the power of Jesus Christ, you have been baptized into one of those things. You are born again into the body of Christ. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, wrote an entire chapter on membership. And he writes this chapter explaining how Paul's definition, as beautiful as it is, of members of the body has unfortunately been taken over by the world and emptied of its meaning. And he goes on to write that, unfortunately, when we think of stuff like that, when we think of being a part of a corporate body or a part of a church or a member of a a, a group of people, we tend to think of it uh, in terms that we would use it today. I'm a part of this corporate job. I'm a I'm a cog in the wheel. I'm one unit next to millions of other units. I'm replaceable by the next person. C.S. Lewis goes on to explain each person in the body of Christ is far different. 
And we would, it would behoove us to redeem that sense of being committed to a church, a local expression of the body of Christ. And he says, contrary to what we are used to thinking in terms of being a member of something, the body of Christ is far more like a family than it is some corporate job in which there is, a, a for example, a father or a daughter or a brother or a sibling or an uncle or a second cousin or a dog, whatever, whatever your family is made of. And there is a sense of unity without uniformity. You don't look like each other. You don't act like each other. You don't have to be one another. There's clear differences. You are all unique and made in the image of God. And yet, Lewis writes, if you subtract one member, you have not simply reduced the family in number. You've inflicted an injury on its structure. Meaning that if you were to take a father out of a family, there would be a detriment to that family. If you were to take out a sibling, there would be a, 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 a horrible detriment to that family. The family has to be whole. And Paul would say every Christian is designed in this way by God to fit into the body of Christ. It cannot function apart from every single one of you. He would say this in that next phrase. Just take that phrase back off the shelf, put it back in to the rest of his sentence where he says, the body is fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament. When Paul says fitted, he's borrowing this term from an ancient vocation of stone cutting. And I know just a little bit about this, having grown up with my dad, who was a plumber. He was a plumbing contractor, so he'd take me on these jobs, and we'd work on these houses all the way through all, uh, all three stages of construction, ending in the finished work, where everyone would... Uh, contractors would come and they'd start to put on the, the outside, so to speak, of what the house would look like. The trim and the painting and the fixtures and the nice stuff. And the stonework and the marble and the decorative stuff in the walls. And I remember one day seeing all of this ornate stuff in a, a particularly nice house. All of these tiny ornate stones just intricately woven together in this wall. And I was like, dude, that's, that's insane. I think I was a, a young teenager at the time, and my dad showed me this trick. And he, he reached into a corner and grabbed one of the contractor's materials, and he lifted it up. And when he lifted it up, what he showed me was all of the stones were actually pre-made and pasted to this wire that the contractor simply unraveled and glued into the wall. He didn't put every single stone in, like with tweezers, he just unraveled it like a fruit roll-up. <laughs> you know, what's fun about Paul is that in his day, stone cutters didn't have any grout. They had to custom make every single stone in relation to the one that it was next to. And in the same way, Paul would say about the body of Christ, you Christian are custom made for this. There is no grout. And some of you have the temptation to look at people that are visible. Oh, Chris, he will handle the preaching, and that guy will handle the singing, and I guess that's all there is to it. That's church in a nutshell. I guess I'll go home and eat lunch. I am not needed here. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't you know that you have been custom made by the hand of God? Without you in that wall, there is something missing. 
We cannot do Christianity alone and we can't do it apart from one another. It is incredibly elaborate. And so we're not talking, when we speak about the church, we're not talking about codependence. We're not talking about independence. We're talking more about interdependence where we are incredibly in need of one another and yet we incredibly complement one another at the same time. And we have to think beyond the four walls of our assembly on Sunday morning. Church is not just this. The church meets in this for two hours. But the church continues to be the church when you leave this building and you live your lives in your jobs, in your recreation, in your families, with your friends, in your neighborhoods. You may ask, well, how can we be interdependent with one another if, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17, we are naturally dependent creatures? And this is the second thing that Paul brings out of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 16, that it's not just about others, it's about God. We see this in the first two words of the verse, from him, from who? From Christ, from Jesus, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes its growth. In other words, your objective standard and your objective in this thing called living the Christian life and doing church together is God himself. Think of the way that you would grab a, uh, an acoustic guitar and try to tune all of the strings by yourself. Unless you had perfect pitch, you would have to do the best that you could to get all the strings in tune with what? Well, with each other. And that would be fine if you're playing by yourself in the closet until you join a band and all of you have discovered that you are all tuning your instrument to yourself. You start to play those instruments and it sounds awful. Instruments have to tune to an objective standard outside of themselves, whether it's a tuner or a tuning fork. And in the same way, Christians gather together with each other with their eyes fixed on a transcendent other. We are tuned to Jesus Christ even as we worship with one another. This is important for you and I to, to understand because as soon as you leave this building you will encounter a lot of different solutions to the problems that you are facing in this life. And unless they are attached to Jesus, they are all garbage. They'll make you feel good, but they will not make you significant. All one has to do is to go down to the uh, neighborhood bookstore and look into the religious section and find tens and dozens of books of self-help and religious, moralistic, deistic therapy where its only power, the only power contained in it, is to tell you that you're not as bad as you thought you were, you're actually okay. The only power the world has to offer you is to make you feel a little better than you were when you came in. Or perhaps less guilty about something that you did. But church, we need something more than just feeling better. We need a champion who can transcend our situation. My heart was broken in the past week, of all things, by reading Facebook. As I saw brothers and sisters in Christ whose hearts were broken 
because of things that have transpired in our own nation. Brothers and sisters, it's one thing to be sad about something that did not pan out the way that you thought. It's another for a Christian whose hope is in a different kingdom to have their dreams crushed because someone let them down. The crazy and cruel irony of Scripture, actually, is that in our search for significance, we've come to the realization by the gospel that we are more insignificant than we thought. See, therapy, and I don't mean therapy in the good sense, I mean moralistic, therapeutic deism, the religious type in which we are simply trying to be better, feel better, do better. All it's able to offer you and I is to tell you that your situation isn't that bad, but the gospel comes in and first, before it's ever good news, drops bad news straight in your lap by saying your situation is worse than you thought. You are worse than you thought. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God, but they have been justified by grace and in redemption in Jesus Christ their Lord. The gospel comes in and says you are worse off than you think, but there is a better champion and hero to your story. Tim Keller in his book Reason for God would describe that because of the gospel, quote, we can say that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. At the very same time, it's a tension. This creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious and electrifying and amazing God's grace appears to you. The worse your situation appears to you, the more glorious God in his grace appears to you simultaneously. And some of you need to know that. Because some of you have come into this building still working so hard to be somebody that you are not. And that is the exemplifying truth of your Christianity today. Is to try to be somebody that you are not. Trying to be somebody, period. You think that this is what Christianity is. is just trying to be someone you're not. And you come to church, gathering, worshiping with others, trying to be someone that you're not. Around people who are also trying to be someone that they're not. And we've started a club of people trying to be people that we're not. We wonder why we wake up on Monday morning and Tuesday morning just as depressed as we were on Saturday night. I'll tell you why. It's not your job to be. It's God's job to work that inside of you. You know what your job is? I couldn't say it any better than Soren Kierkegaard says it like this, the most powerful word that has ever been said, God's creative word is be. Be healed. Light be. Be loosed. Be freed. Chains be broken. Be saved. Be overjoyed. God's creative word is be, but the most powerful word any human being has ever said is, I abide. My problem is that I am all too 
good at being someone that I'm not. And I'm all too bad at learning how to abide in what God has declared over me that I already am. Paul, in quoting the prophet Hosea in the book of Romans, declares this over everybody who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. You who used to be called not my people are now called my people. You who used to be known as unloved are now called beloved. You are the beloved in Christ Jesus. And when your belovedness is known and enjoyed, you will find not just healing, but Christ-centered community supernaturally being formed around you. Some of you need to hear today that you are beloved by God for the sheer reason of grace alone. There are people in this room who have screwed up so horribly that you aren't even listening to me right now. You are thinking about some past sin. Some of you have done some unspeakable things in your life. You would never even have the comfort to tell a Christian brother or sister in fear that they would judge you for it. Christ speaks over you, my beloved. This is what makes church so different. Even though on frequent occasion we play church and we judge each other for no reason. Church is not community for community's sake. It is community gathered around a transcendent, risen Lord who feeds into that gathering his breathtaking power and speaks into that gathering a new identity in Christ. Our job and our worship is to sit like Mary and abide in what he speaks over us. What is he speaking over you, Christian? You already know. He calls you his beloved. If there ever were a corner on the earth where heaven touched earth, it would be where the gathering of the elect meet together. For as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 18, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Excuse me, chapter 3. You know that the gospel has transformed you when you are able to get together with people and say, I am no longer at the mercy of pleasing other people to suit my longing for approval because my significance has come from a better champion. If Christ approves of you, then other people's approval is worth very little. And when you find the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ working in your pain and in your hurt and in those acts of betrayal and in those things that other people have spoken over you falsely, when you find the gospel beginning to mine deeply in some of those old wounds, you find that it's good news. Why? Because your deepest longings are met not in people, not in community, not even in church, but in Jesus Christ. So that when you come together as the church, you are able to meet the needs of others. Jesus said they will know they are my disciples because of their love for one another that means when the outside world is looking in on us not just in this building but in our homes in our marriages in playtime in restaurants in our vocations in the grocery store on the highway They won't know that we're disciples because they see a bunch of people trying really hard to love each other. They will see people 
who have been made alive in Christ and are bursting forth with his love. Before you can love each other like that, you have to experience it being shown towards you first. Before you can love somebody that will surely let you down and fail you, you have to be loved by someone who has been failed by you. We have failed God in our sin. And he demonstrates his love for you and I in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you and me. If we can gather anything from what Paul says today, it would be to immerse ourselves in that and abide in it forever. To do two things. Lock our eyes on Jesus Christ and lock our arms with one another. Heavenly Father, I ask right now that as we pray and sing that Christ, you would make your presence known here. So many of us, myself included, have come on Sunday morning putting on a face because we are afraid of what other people would think of us. God, you see through our face. (laughs) See through our face and you see our hearts. And in a church this size, there are surely hundreds, maybe thousands of people who are hurting, who have been hurt, who have caused other people to hurt. And we will not deal with those things because we are afraid of what you might think of us. I pray that for the first time, maybe in some of our lives, you would heal us where we are hurting. That by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would show us that we are more wicked than we ever dared imagine. And yet by grace, we are more loved than we could fathom. Pray that the love of Jesus Christ would compel us to repent of our sins and to follow after a better champion. Lord, I speak over men and women in this gathering today who have done outlandish things, unspeakable sins that they are ashamed of, and I pray that those things would fall open at the foot of the cross and you would bring healing for the first time even. That where there is repentance, there is also times of refreshing. I pray that in doing so, we would learn not to perpetuate what we have tried to get from other people, a face, hypocrisy, double standards. We would learn to be real with each other. We would lock our arms together, but we would this entire time fix our eyes upon something that transcends our own situation, that there is a king. He is making all things new, and he is starting with our own broken hearts. Pray that right now you would heal us today. You would make us more in love with you and more in love with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.